Asia Tech Podcast with Graham Brown and Michael Waits. Hi, this is Michael Waits from Asia Tech Podcast Stories, and I'm here with Felix Tan. Felix is the managing director of the FinLab, and the FinLab is Singapore's first corporate fintech accelerator. Felix, how are you? I'm good, Michael. Thank you very much for having me. So we were talking beforehand. You're very welcome, by the way. We were talking beforehand. This is your first time on a podcast, right? That is absolutely correct. But you don't sound nervous at any level, which is great. <laughs> well, I've done interviews, but now I've never done a podcast. So, okay. Fair enough. I mean, but I've had some people on the podcast that have been really nervous. So, and it's taken a while for them to kind of calm down and hit their groove. But it doesn't seem like that's going to be a problem with you, which is great. It seems really relaxed. <laughs> well, I, I hope not. I hope not. So tell me more about yourself. Where are you from? Well, um, prior to the film, you want my whole CV or do you just want the last few years? Yeah, I really just want to know. Like, I want to know your story. Like, you're doing the FinLab for a reason. But I don't think anybody just wakes up one day and just says, I'm going to start a corporate fintech accelerator or anything. I think people's lives have an arc to them. And I think that arc is actually more important. We had a conversation with somebody yesterday, and it was the first time he had actually gone through his story with us or with anybody. And when he was done, it was a little, in a way, it was a little bit cathartic, right? He felt like I hadn't <laughs> been through that before. And so I'm just curious, like you can start wherever you want, wherever you think the natural beginning is. But I want you to think about this as, you know, who are you and why are you here really, right? All right. Um, well, I was actually one of several fellows who started Singapore's first um, I guess at that point in time we call it an internet company mm-hmm. back in the mid nineties, you know, the mid nineteen nineties, nineteen ninety five to be exact. Wow, that's a long time ago. Um, yeah, that was a long time ago. So you know, I was part of that initial internet wave. Uh, you know, a whole bunch of us plunged into it. A good number of us don't really have any idea what we're getting ourselves into. We kind of like figured it out along the way. Um, we built a very, very good business. I think a lot of it was, uh, you know, on hindsight, uh, you know, uh, a lot of it was good luck and just because we were a little bit smarter than, you know, the rest, just that little bit, uh, we did the right things. Uh, we ran after the right clients. So that kind of like set the tone, um, you know, for the, the, the company to grow. And we became pretty much like a thought leader um, during that time between 1995 to 2000, right before the dot bomb. So, you know, we, we did get the company up. We raised, you know, geez, something like 72 and a half million U.S. dollars. Uh, into our portfolio of companies and, and uh, another $20 million to start a, uh, a venture capital fund uh, that looks into you know, business-to-business types, um, business portals. Uh, those were all very, very early days. Um, we were experimenting with a lot of stuff. Uh, a lot of that actually panned out about 10, 15 years later, unfortunately. <laughs> unfortunately for me, that is. <laughs> uh, so, so yeah, that kind of like set the stage of, you know, how it is like to, you know, to, to actually start a startup, run a startup, what are the things that we should be looking for. And, you know, after that, you know, when we, we, we were bought, uh, or rather we got investment from uh, Pacific Century Cyberworks, you know. Yeah, name, that's, sure Richard, that's Richard Lee's company, right? That's correct. Um, he 
he kind of like looked at us at that point in time and felt that we are one of the more um, visible and you know more forward-thinking internet companies uh, in Singapore at that point in time. And the entire deal was probably broken and done uh, all within a month. So he invested about 25 million US dollars for a post of 100 million at that point in time. We were ecstatic, of course. Uh, we started the company with just under 300,000 Sing dollars and to be valued at 100 million US, you know, just short five years after, you know, that was quite a trip. But, you know, what was a bigger trip was that we were gunning to go public um, not long after that. And well, so what did, that, what did that company do? This is the Silk Root Ventures business that you're talking about? That is correct. That is correct. Okay, we started off as any other company started off in the 1995, right? We wanted to be the be-all and end-all directory to all things big and small in Asia. Uh, we quickly found out that, you know, that wasn't the, you know, the yellow pages type of model isn't something that we are right. uh, very good at doing. Uh, so we decided to, uh, you know, just change it. Hey, look, you know, why don't we just go build, you know, corporate websites uh, for very very rich corporates and people who can afford us so that was the direction we went yeah that was the direction that we went down we were actually very very fortunate um because at that point in time we found a government agency who wanted to build a website but they didn't know how so we helped them write the tender documents so we kind of like you know make sure that our competition didn't get the tender little bit sneaky but then you know we got ourselves in that was our first big break and after we've done after we one done one government agency you know we just got passed along to the other government agencies because we did really very very good work we were just not you know uh, uh, putting the brochures into electronic format but we actually came out with interesting concepts for them to present themselves online with whatever technology at that point in time that was uh, kind of like hip and cool. Right? I'll give you one um, one example. Uh, you remember this brand called Grandic? Yeah, I do. Uh, it's a very, very old brand. And uh, they, they, they had speakers... Um, and they wanted us to to showcase their speakers, you know, on the web. And at that point in time, uh, this one company called uh, Silicon Graphics, which is no longer around. Yep. yep. Right. That's a Barksdale company, I think, or oh, no, I can't remember. Yeah. Just came Silicon, up with a bit. Yep. Yeah. Silicon Graphics, and yep. they came up with this really, very interesting uh, piece of technology called VRML, Virtual Reality Markup Language. Which we then used to do wireframes of, you know, their model, uh, you know, the the speakers and stuff like that, which people can rotate based on a two D screen. Right. So we did that for them. We did that for for Lexus. We did that for a whole host of clients. So we're always on the lookout for interesting new stuff uh, that can add value rather than just oh, you know, I'm just going to make an electronic brochure for you, and uh, there's really no value add. So we come up with very interesting ideas and. And that was one of the reasons why we continued to be a premium player in the uh, you know website building space, where you know where everybody else was trying to cut costs to gain market share. We were just upping our our, our costs and and going to the people who want to and are willing to afford us. Wow! But that twenty right? so, that twenty five so million dollars that you raised from Richard Lee was it must have been a ton of money back then, right? It was a ton of money, but you know, for, for us, but you know, not for Richard. You know, he just issued us yeah, no, I know, Pacific I know. Century Cyber Award. <laughs> he, he issued us spending money. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> yeah, so 
we we were fortunate at that point in time because we got them to we said look you know we wanted to give some of our shareholders existing shareholders some form of exit so if you're if you are able to give us something that's liquid that's great um, so you know we convinced them to do that 25 million half of it in vendor shares the other half of it in new shares wow so yeah so you know we were fortunate um, we I, if I remember correctly I, and I believe you can Google this. You know, online as well. I think the document is still, you know, up there in the web somewhere. Um, the we concluded a deal at uh, Hong Kong six and a half dollars. You know, one Pacific one PCW share, right? And uh, twelve and a half million US worth of that um, in 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 in, in uh, you know in vendor shares and twelve and a half million of that in new shares. Wow. So we were fortunate because you know by the time the moratorium was up. For the uh, you know the vendor shares, uh, the the price of PCW had gone up about threefold, fourfold. Hmm. That's a great, right. so, that's a great know, investment and a great exit for your investors, right? Yeah, for 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 us predominantly and the people the people that that were you know the early believers in in the company um, and uh, you know the, and then after that we were we were basically looking to see how we can go public. Um, unfortunately. There was, you know, a little bit of a divergence in so far as the key people are concerned. You know, some of them wanted to go to Nasdaq where they can get a higher valuation. Right. Um, others like myself and say, hey, look, you know, um, you know, the rules for the Singapore Exchange has been, uh, I guess, rewritten to accommodate companies like ours. You know, to list without having a profit track record. Right. Internet internet companies back then don't make money. <laughs> so, 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 uh, unfortunately, you know, the the the, the bigger vote won out. We went, uh, we we went to uh, try to list on the Nasdaq. I think we were just about a month out from submitting our documents to the SEC when when the dot com happened. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> I think this is oh, a this is a common story, right? I mean, a lot of people were really close to doing an IPO back then, and then just everything the bottom fell out. So did it, but did that take away your ability to run that company, or did the company keep going, but you just didn't get to go public? Well, it it didn't go public. Uh, that's number one. Um, there was a lot of uh, discontent and unhappiness. Unfortunately, at that point in time, I mean, when when you start a company with a bunch of friends and things don't quite work out, uh, and greed got into the way in, in terms of common sense. And, uh, you know, a bird in hand to me is worth more than two in a bush. Uh, they went for the long shot. I wanted to do something that's a little bit more attainable, which is, you know, go public here. And uh, we could have easily gone out, I believe, at about 300 million sing. And, you know, the typical float is about 20%. Yep. And that's, and that's a real number, particularly back in 2000. Yeah. Correct, and and we would have sixty million dollars in our watches, and I really don't care whether the market went up or went down because Doesn't if matter. it get, went down, that's even better because I get to you know do the you know do, to to purchase the <laughs> fire sales and stuff like that, and, yep. and, and and of course the company would have been uh, quite a different animal um, had it been that way. But unfortunately, nope, we missed it totally. <laughs> so you didn't list. So you didn't list anywhere, right? So what do you learn? What do you learn from this? Like, Number really, one, so don't listen. No, no. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, don't listen to investment bankers. <laughs> you're, 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 you're laughing actually, but I agree in a, to a certain extent, right? Because their interests are not necessarily, I would say always, but I'll take away always. Their interests are not aligned with yours, right? 
Well, I mean, okay, to put it very, very simply, for them to take us on IPO, right, whether on the NASDAQ or here in Singapore, mm-hmm. the amount of work they have to put in is round about the same. It is. Right? Number one. Number two, right, and when the, when, if, we, if they push us to go to NASDAQ and we agree with them and if it was successful, they would have walked away with, number one, potentially a much larger market capitalization, number one. Number two, uh, they would have gotten 7% fees in U.S. dollars. 7% as- fees? Yes. Back then. Yeah, fair enough. 7% fees, yep, 7% fees in U.S. dollars as opposed to 4.5% fees in Singapore dollars. Yeah, and what are their fees today? They're in basis points, I think, right? I think, yeah, yeah, it's very, very different now. Right, yeah, so, they're, so their interests are aligned with listing in the United States at the time, right? Because they make 2.5% more, which is actually 50% more fees. Right, that's correct. And remember that the Singapore dollar, the US dollar to the Singapore dollar, one US dollar was about 1.7 some right. Singapore dollars right. back then. So, right. you know, you, you, it's a no brainer. It's a no-brainer. If I was the investment banker, I'd do the same thing. But would you, I mean, the real question is, like, are you making a, one, a one-off bet? Like, are you just, is it a one-night stand or is it a long-term relationship, right? And I think that's the way, one of, that's one of the things that I've learned over time is that a real relationship, as you said, gets built over time, mm-hmm. right? And I think as you look at the way startup companies and investment companies are getting built today, I think people are continuing to make the same mistake, and that is, I'm, you know, I'm in a one-night stand. Maybe a two-nine stand. But I think what you're saying is that building that long-term relationship, like you said, that bird in the hand is worth way more than just what the one-night stand is worth over time. That is true. That is true. And, and, and the one thing a lot of people are very obsessed with, at least you know, during this um, last few years, uh, given the tech um, you know, recovery and all things tech become, you know, became very, very mm-hmm. uh, sec once again, is that everybody's running after, you know, oh, I'm going to be the next unicorn, I'm going to be the next Uber, I'm going to be the next Grab, you know, I'm going to be the next company that's valued more than a billion bucks, yada, yada, yada. Right, but you're not, uh, right? And I don't mean you, I just mean one is not necessarily going to be that. And frankly, in my mind, that doesn't necessarily matter. That's not the yardstick by which you need to measure yourself immediately. Well, I mean, it, it, it is an ego thing, right? For to say sure. that, you know, right? I mean, when I was in Silk Road, when we, when we were, you know, looking at, um, you know, the, what we call a beauty parade, you mm-hmm. know, of all these bulk bracket investment banks pitching to us to get our mandate, you know, to, 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 to take us, you know, public, um, our lowest valuation was 1.5 BUS. Hmm. Our highest valuation was 6.5. Right. Um, this is a five-year-old company that's not made profits. Uh, we'll, well, probably you're talking uh, at that point in time when we were going to go listing, we were looking at probably like $10 million worth in revenues here and there. But to be valued at 1.5 B, yeah, uh, 100, times, 100 times, yeah. No, it's ridiculous because you know, that kind of value creation, number one, you can't sustain. Nope. That, that's number one. Number two, right, and, and this is what I tell the companies that come through the FinLab is that, look, you know, you can be worth a billion dollars on paper, but if we're going to go to a Ferrari showroom, you can't right? buy anything with it, right? You can't buy it. You can't buy it because it's not money in the bank. It's on paper. Until it's money in the bank, then we talk. Other other than that, it's all paper. 
Yeah, and it's as- actually aspirational paper. I mean, if you look at what was the name of the company that was it called Fab in the United States, this big e-commerce company that was meant to go out and compete with Amazon. They had right, a, mul- had a multi-billion dollar valuation. In the end, they were sold for ten million dollars. Yep, yep, yep. We had uh, pretty much a similar experience uh, with one of our portfolio companies, which was our our crown jewel during our silver days. Um, we that particular company raised like, geez, like forty, fifty million U.S. dollars. And what was that? Right. Was that the ECnet company? Uh, yep, absolutely right. And what was ECnet? What did that company do? Well, ECnet at that point in time had a very interesting value proposition because. Um, we were at that point in time. They were targeting the large uh, contract manufacturers, or you know, sorry, the large electronic players like your Panasonics, your Hitachi's, right? All these big boys, right? Um, and they and 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 what they do is that uh, their uh, production is run using ERP systems, you know, to to forecast requirements and stuff. Right, and they right, usually so ER, when you say ERP, you're talking about enterprise resource planning, just for people that don't necessarily right. know, right? ERP systems, right. yeah. That's right. That's right. And and for a lot of these large electronic manufacturers, what they do is that they have um, large contracts with large suppliers, which potentially, you know, these guys, the large suppliers themselves, they will have also ERP systems. Yep. So you know, it's ERP to ERP. They can input information from one end, electronic to electronic. Not a major problem. But they also do have hundreds and hundreds of smaller suppliers, which they would sometimes requisite, you know, the shortfall from. But these guys don't have anything that's remotely close to an ERP. And if you remember the technology of the day, uh, it'll be done through faxes, Hmm. right? And, you know, a number five could look like a number six, (laughs) you know, uh, a number number seven could look like a number one, One. depending on... Yeah, correct. So they had a lot of issues with their small suppliers because when the numbers came back and somebody you know input those numbers wrongly, it affected the ERP, you know, uh, their production line and stuff like that quite significantly. I understand. Right. So what we did was that we built a black box and which basically took um, their ERP uh, requirements translated into email, sent it off to the suppliers, and they receive it on email. They reply on email, right, uh, in, 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 in a formatted uh, manner. It comes back, then gets input into the ERP system directly. So it's a black box that does that. You know, you know don't, don't, don't ask me how it's done. It could be monkeys inputting the stuff on their own, but hey, right. it, it, it worked. worked. Yeah, and, and, and it was very, very attractive. It, it helped. Uh, we, we, we had like a whole bunch of companies from Indonesia to, to, to Malaysia to Thailand to Taiwan to Japan and all across to, I believe, even the U.S. in uh, San Francisco. So, yeah, we, the, the company was worth, um, geez, something in about the last round that was raised, which was close to the round that Richard Lee put money into, this, into Silk Road. The last round that was raised close to that. I believe was in the 350 million US, you know, post money valuation. So, um, you, I mean, you were just like a pioneer in all these spaces, right? I mean, Silk Route Ventures was also building companies like ECnet. That's right. That's right. We did. We we tried. We tried a lot of new things. We tried to pioneer a lot of interesting new business models, uh, like online advertising. Um, you know, um, 
online recruitment, but those things were just way too far ahead of their time at that point. Right. So what happened? To all like, did all of these companies just go away at some point? Well, yeah. When when the dot bomb happened, everything just kind of died, and because we didn't go IPO, uh, there weren't sufficient funds to sustain the company moving forward. So right. everything was closed down. ECnet, you know, in all its glory, was sold for a grand total of a hundred and fifty thousand US dollars. Oh God. Yeah, but again, it's a it's a it's a common story, right? Like when you tell this story to friends and family, or to you know friends at far wide, like you're not the only person telling that story, particularly no. with what was going on back in two thousand, right? No, but it's a lot more personal because you know I've gone sure. through. <laughs> sure, it's really personal, but isn't that the thing, right? That keeps like we talk about this all the time. But the idea in business is just to keep moving forward. Right? You can yes. give up back then. You can just give up and say, "This is okay. We got killed when all this stuff went pear shaped." And I'm just never going to jump back into that space again. Or you can go out and rebuild and then say, as soon as it's appropriate for me to get back in the market, I'm just going to go back and do it because it's in me and I have to get it out of me. And the only way to do it is to just go out and continue to innovate, right? No, that's, that, that is in part, I think, part of my DNA in that sense. It sounds you like know, it. Yeah, always looking to do something a little bit different. Um, and uh, my last engagement before being headhunted into the FinLab was with a local SME. You may have heard of this company right now because they're bloody famous. Uh, a lot of press have, uh, you know, have, have, have featured them. Uh, is this company called Vanda Electrics? And they built Singapore's first electric hypercar called the Dendrobium. Go ahead. All right. So Singapore has never been known to be, you know, anything remotely close to, you know, manufacturing a car. No, uh, but but nobody but really has. I mean, you know, auto manufacturing is really non-trivial, and it takes a huge. There's a massive barrier to entry because building a car manufacturing plant literally costs right. a billion dollars just to retool one, even if it's even if it already exists. That's correct. But the whole idea about this whole thing is that you know we believe at that point in time when I was with them, the company believed that it, you know, the future is electric, and that happens to be their tagline as well. Uh, you know, stuff that Elon Musk is doing, we believe that that's the future, you know, moving forward. Um, however, you know, as a small company, I really don't have the resources to build a brand the traditional way, i.e., you know, yeah, it's extremely hard and it's extremely expensive. So what, they, what, what we decided to do back then was to have a lighthouse project, building a concept car that is going to, you know, take the imagination away from people. It's like, whoa, I've never seen this done. And this is coming from where? Singapore. Oh, wow. And um, we actually succeeded in doing that uh, in that we managed to convince um, Williams Advanced Engineering, the people be behind F1 Williams. The F1 cars, yeah. Yep, the F1 cars to help. To, to, to actually build the prototype. And, you know, it was first unveiled at the Geneva Car Show and then was later on invited to go to Monaco for the Monaco Supercar Show. And it was their centerpiece. And, uh, you know, the, the car has just returned to Singapore and, you know, it's, it's, it's given the company a lot of profile. But, you know, it's not about building that particular car. It's about getting people, getting eyeballs, getting people to know about vendor electrics. And, you know, for very little money, actually, you know, very guerrilla marketing type, you know, tactics that, you know, that we used to employ, you know, as a very, very poor company, <laughs> hmm. you know, back then. 
in, in, in the early internet days? I mean, we, we don't have the budget of a Cisco, we don't have the budget of a Microsoft, but how do we then, you know, make sure that people know about us? So, you know, we were very, very smart and very, very strategic uh, in the way we spent our marketing dollars, you know, to get, you know, more and end up punching way above our, our weight class in, in that sense. So that was where I was before. It was really exciting because it was always looking at what's in the future. And I believe that's the way we should be, 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 be looking at things. We should always be looking forward and seeing what are the things currently that, you know, that, that I'm not entirely happy with, what can I change? And you know, just build a vision around that and see how you can actualize it. Right, so what is the FinLab? The FinLab to me looks like, is this corporate venture capital? Is this corporate innovation? Like how does this actually work? And is, are you a founder or are you okay. hired to be the CEO? Like how did that work? Right, okay, um, in, in American speak, I'm the hired gun, right? <laughs> Whatever um, so, that means, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. So given, given my very varied background in terms of, you know, having started my own internet company, having invested into other, you know, tech companies, having run tech companies, having started a, uh, a venture capital fund investing into such companies um, and, and all that kind of stuff, they felt that I was the right candidate to do to, to take this fintech uh, accelerator thing forward now two years two and a half about two years ago this whole accelerator space was really gaining a lot of momentum mm. and um, everybody wanted to have one right and at that point in time we have what we call the commercial accelerators you know which would be your you know in, in, in Hong Kong would probably be your nest uh, you know your startup boot camp all these people because you know they are basically a third-party vendor that say hey look you know if you if you are if you want to have a uh, innovation program uh, you know give us some money you know we'll stick you know, your logo onto our program and we'll help you run it but so who is right? doing, who's doing that in Singapore though well at that point in time uh, there were a few um, they started off with uh, the first one is joyful frog so JFDI uh, yeah JFDI which actually stands for just fucking do it but yeah, of course no. I can't <laughs> and so Hugh, Hugh used to tell me that you know that they made up the joyful frog thing because when they went to register the company, and we'll, and we'll we'll talk to Hugh later. But when they went to register the company, they were like, "You can't call it that." And he's like, "Okay, well then, I'm just going to do it anyway." But we'll just call it the joyful frog digital incubator if that makes you happy. Yep. But yep, everyone's yep, going to yep. know what JFDI means. Correct. Correct. But anyways, you know, they were the the pioneers. They started out. They broke new ground. Um, you know, it was it was you know very very new at that point in time. It was exciting. Yep. Um, yeah, but unfortunately, you know, pioneers being pioneers, sometimes you you're just too early in the market. Uh, your 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 business model and stuff like that uh, isn't exactly very well formed. And as the market progress, you know, you start to you know feel the pressure and things just kind of like you know didn't 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 you know go down. Pretty much like how we were in Silk Route. Yep. Right. Same thing. We we're just yeah we we're too just too early. And then, of course, you've got Startup Bootcamp, which is one of the bigger brand names that came over here in Singapore. They started up one, and they've now moved out. They've gone off to, to, to I believe, to, to, to China. Yeah, they didn't have and, much. To be fair, I don't, I don't know that team, but they didn't have much of an impact. Right? I mean, JFDI really was the pioneer in that space, and they actually had a big impact. They run, ran a yeah, bunch of cohorts, and I've been in their offices. I was there at the demo days, like Hugh and Charlie and what was it, Ming? Also, they did a great job. It's just hard to make that work as a business model, right? Agree, agree. So you know that that was the 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 start of the uh, what we call the 
operate uh, the the commercial accelerators, yep. and um, at some point in time, the government at that point in time, through the Infocom Development Authority, mm-hmm. uh, the 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 part that invested into JFDI and co-invested with a uh, with 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 um, startup bootcamp uh, at that point in time was called Infocom Investments Private Limited mm-hmm. or IIPL for short. They they were starting to think, look, you know, we should actually you know partner with an FI if we're really looking to to do a serious fintech accelerator, right? So when so F- they moved it. Yeah. So FI, you mean right? a financial an existing financial institution? Yeah. Sorry. Yep, yep. Yep. So they, they they were thinking along that lines, and you know they kind of like mooted the idea, and of course UOB United Overseas Bank was the first to stick their hand up, and uh, this whole JV was concluded. Uh, the entity was uh, launched in November of 2015, and I was brought on in December 2015. Got it. And. And basically, you know, just 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 started building everything up from scratch. And you know, I was quite happy doing what I was doing, you know, with Vendor Electrics over that at that point in time. Uh, but you know, I was a sucker for you know all these, uh, I guess, big things. You know, I was being sold the idea. I said, <laughs> Felix, you you're building one artisan at a time over here. You know, but when you come to the FinLab. You know, you'll be building your factory, you know, just churning out artisans. So me being a sucker for all these kinds of things, you know, I fell for it. You know? <laughs> I signed up. <laughs> right. So so but yeah, thankfully things have worked out pretty well. Our first batch. Um we got eight companies, um, and um two of them unfortunately you know, have uh died. One kind of like tried to pivot, but not too sure what they're pivoting into, so they are kind of like in limbo. Which one? So is, I still have five. Which one is that? So you want to just tell me about a couple of them? So, which one is the one you think was having the problem you just said? Which ones? Oh, no, this uh, I'm not going to go into. I'd rather tell you about the. Ones that, I'd rather tell you about the ones that 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 that, you know, that, that made some headway. Um, so one one of the ones uh, in our first batch uh, was a company uh, that hailed from the Ukraine. Uh, the name is Turnkey Lender, as in Turnkey, T-U-R-N-K-E-Y, mm-hmm. Lender. Uh, they are a SaaS platform uh, for lending businesses, for non-bank lenders. So if I want to, if I have loads of money and I want to, you know, make proper use of that money uh, by starting a lending business, but I don't have an end-to-end solution that, you know, banks have in terms of doing their risk assessment, the sc- credit scoring, I can go to them and get their solution. Right, okay, and so, so they don't make the loans themselves. They just try, They just so provide the back end. The solution. That's correct. They just provide the solution. They help integrate in, in, into into your system. They help you, um, you know, jig, rejig the rules so you know everything is as much as possible automated. Um, they received a two million dollar, um, a two million US dollars investment from a government-linked VC called Vertex Ventures only, I think, this past July. Wow. So, yeah, they're well on their way. Um, Another company called Cardup, they are in the process of completing their seed round uh, with a big-name U.S. uh, investor uh, that's big in the payment space. That's all I can say. Um, I'm just waiting for them to actually make that announcement public, and you will probably know who they are. Yeah. So, anyways, uh, and till till then, it is uh, you know em- embargoed. 
<laughs> yeah, right? fair enough. Look, the payment space is really interesting to me in a lot of for a lot of different reasons. I mean, we can go and move on and talk about. I presume you must be doing some stuff in the in the blockchain space as well, right? Because that's where a lot of your payment stuff is going to go there, whether it's smart contracts or just facilitating the payment itself. Do you right, see right. things moving there? Like, are you working in the blockchain space too? Oh, for sure. In the first cohort, we have a blockchain startup um, called uh, Atres, A-T-T-O-R-E-S. Right. Uh, yeah, they, they are in the smart contract space. But I think, you know, as of all things, very, very new and given the fact that you know I have to have multiple counterparties to come together to make this work, right? Uh, while conceptually you can see how this thing is going to help make life a lot easier for a lot of people, getting the different parties to the table to agree to a certain standard isn't exactly the easiest thing to do. No, that's right. Yeah, at least not from a startup's point of view. You've got banks trying to get the, to 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 make this work, and they're having you know lots of problems getting that done themselves, right? So, so it is. I think it is not the technology, but I think it is more the timing. It's a little bit too early, uh, you know. As in all things, right? Timing is everything. So, you know, they they they, they had to pivot uh, to 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 try to see how they can uh, continue to draw some revenues, and uh, they pivoted into stuff that is, to me, you know, a low hanging fruit to help. Um, in, uh, educational institutions, right? Yep. Issue sets that are uh, on the blockchain. So, you know, you, gone are the days where you can have a degree mill, churn out stuff, and nobody can verify whether you did uh, graduate from that school or not, and whether or not you've got bogus uh, credentials. Um, you know, once you put that on the blockchain, and if, let's say, Stanford University says that Felix graduated from Stanford with a Bachelor in Science, and any potential employer who's looking to, 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 to check my credentials can go on the blockchain, the Stanford blockchain, and check to say, hey, look, you know, I did graduate there, and I did graduate with the degree I said I graduated with. So these kinds of things will help. Um, it's actually a very low-hanging fruit um, for employers and employees, that, that kind of thing. You know, like for me, I graduated from school you know, 30, 40 years ago. Right. And if I want to have a new job, those guys will say, look, you know, uh, you know because we're under the British system, can I have your A-level cert? Right. And stuff? Like, oh, right. My good. You know, that thing is moth-eaten and it's lost somewhere. Right. I don't have that anymore. <laughs> the dog ate my homework kind of thing. Yeah, it's gone. <laughs> yep, yep. Which is true, though. <laughs> no, it is true. So tell me this. So the FinLab, right? What is the differentiating factor between the FinLab and maybe some of the other accelerators, besides the fact that it's just fintech focused. Ah, okay. Right, so what do no. I get? Let's say I, you know, I, I like to run through the process, right? And I don't want to take up, you know, hours to do it, but I just want to understand, like, if I'm a fintech startup, how do I get into the cohort? What do I get if I'm part of that class? Like all those types of things. How does that really work for people that may still not understand how that process works? What do you, what do you guys right. do, right? Okay, very, very simply, in any type of relationship, whether, you know, be it, you know, getting selected into an accelerator program or, you know, boy-girl type thing, you know, it has to go both ways. I have to like you as much as you like me. Right. So I, I have to make sure that my value propositions are clear, right, and uh, been because of the fact that, you know, I've got a bank and a uh, corporate venture capitalist, CVC, Right, as my shareholders. Mm -hmm. So, my 
value propositions are very, very clear. Number one, right? Um, in terms of mentorship, I have the bank who, if you take a look at our website, have practically all their top business people as my mentors. So as a company, a, a fintech startup who's looking to venture to sell uh, you know, their product and thingamajig to any financial institutions, product market fit is a very important thing. So if, you, if, if the startup is keen on having UOB potentially to be their first corporate client, these guys, right, being uh, the end users themselves, would be the best people if they like the product and the solution to tell them you know, how they want that particular mousetrap to look like. So the product market fit is one of the key things, and through mentorship, they can get that. That's number one. Number two, unless you have a very rich parent or a rich uncle, hmm. every startup business will need to have business and will need to have access to venture capital funds, right? Yep. Um, UOB Bank is one of the largest regional banks here in, uh, you know, in Southeast Asia at least. And you know, their client base primarily are businesses. So you know, this is a huge network that they can t- potentially tap into uh, you know, should they come in? You know, should they should their solution be adopted by the bank, or should the bank say, "Hey, look, you know, we have clients who actually have a need for this. You know, how can you then work with them?" So access to 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 market uh, to business is key. Access to funds. Uh, the other half of my shareholder is a is a VC fund. Um, they know who's who in the VC world. Uh, they we are able to tap on their contacts to bring these guys down to you know to listen to the pitches, to give feedback, to be our mentors, right? And uh, you know these are the two key value propositions that uh, that we tell every company that's looking to come into the FinLab. We've got number one mentorship, and we've got number two um, the networks. These are the two things that you really need. To, to, to go to market very, very quickly. Right, but do, right? do you find, so my question always with CVC, and I think some companies actually do this quite well, but do you find that in the fintech space, there's a bit of resistance, I think may be the wrong word, but I can't come up with a better word right now, but a little bit of resistance for like a fintech company to sort of marry themselves to one institution early on? Does, yes. Does it hinder their ability to exit later and then provide more, um, Value to their other investors if they're you know if their investors aren't just SG Innovate right and which is the former IIPL I'm guessing and then right, right it is so how does that how does that work from a sort of emotional standpoint or psychological standpoint for the founders when they try to decide do I take the UOB and the SG Innovate money mm-hmm. and am I okay. limiting myself from an exit standpoint later? Okay, now first of all, um, given the fact that. Uh, UOB Bank is my shareholder. Right. Um, they do have the, I guess, the privilege of having first dips. So if I want and if I like this particular uh, bunch of companies uh, that's in the cohort, I can look to see how I can have them become not just a vendor because you know indirectly through the FinLab, UOB and SG Innovate are already shareholders. But at the same time, if they want to have a commercial discussion with that company to say, that, look, I like your solution, I want to use your solution, then they can have a commercial discussion on that front. 
Now, they are not obligated to use those solutions to begin with. That means those guys coming into the FinLab, they are not guaranteed that you know UOB will pilot with them. Okay, it's okay. just like it. buying buying a lottery ticket. You're not guaranteed a win, but you know for you to even have a chance of winning, you have to buy. Right, so it's an option. They're just buying an option, right? Right, they're just buying an option. And frankly, the investment amount into these guys are, is very very small. You're talking thirty thousand US dollars, sing dollars here. Okay, so right? they're not making an overriding investment. They're not becoming a majority no. shareholder. They're super no. minority. They're just getting a look, like a first look at this. Correct. So if after they get selected into the program and if they so decide that, hey, my venture management site really likes this or my the VC site really likes this, then they take it up to the next level and they will, normally would have to come in as uh, not as the lead because, you know, it then becomes a little bit, you know, odd, you know, a conflict of interest, right? They right. normally have to find another lead, and then they they will they, they will join in if they so decide to do so. So it doesn't it doesn't close the door to other VCs. It doesn't close the door to other financial institutions who might want to you know use these products. Okay, so now that you've been doing you've been doing this for a couple of years now, right? Right, almost two years. Almost two years. What's yep. the what's the future of this? Like, where do you see the 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 place where CVC? and sort of corporate venturing and corporate accelerators fit into the overall ecosystem as the system develops? Does this continue to grow? Does it stagnate at a certain point? Like, how do you see the future of this happening? Well, um, the way I look at it, um, the financial institutions themselves, right? Um, and I think this is not just a problem here in Singapore, but I, I guess it is more, you know, very more widespread around the region and even the world. If I am a large corporation, uh, it's highly unlikely that I will take on a very early stage startup as a vendor. Yeah, fair enough. Very, very unlikely. Too much right? risk. Because, Too much risk, of right? risk yeah, because of the risk involved. I'd rather pay that million dollars to the McKinsey's or to the IBM's of the world, right, than to do the, you know, the hundreds of thousand dollars, you know, with, with, with a smaller uh, you know, local company. Yep. So this this part here is always gonna is will always be an issue. Um, moving forward, I you know as some of these companies, I would hope you know at least that you know, the stronger ones among them, and we do pick the ones who are strong. Uh, we pick those who have a strong value proposition. We pick those especially with strong founders. Right, and even then, there's no guarantee for success, which is one of the reasons why you know the the JFDI business model at the start, you know, you're buying you know plenty of lottery tickets, but you know which one of that can you actually cash in on? You really don't know until you know a good few years later, if ever, right? Right. So, so these kinds of things will happen. We have to take a long-term view on this, and you know what the FinLab wants to do is that we will look to see how we can continue. Right, even after they finish those, the first batch that finished in 2016 in August, we're still in touch with them. We're still giving them contacts. We're still giving them, you know, um, references. We're still doing all these things with them, so that you know we believe that if they are able to sustain themselves, if they are able to grow, right, through acquiring new contracts, new business, right, the valuation bit is a byproduct. It will come. If they are successful, that valuation will go up. Right. Almost by definition, right? 
Right. So, you know, I don't want to put the cart before the horse and say, well, where's my unicorn? But if you're not giving me business, how am I going to ever build a unicorn, right? Right. And how am I going to help you build that unicorn as well? So, makes sense. Right. So, you know. Yeah. Go ahead. So, I'm, I'm just saying that, you know, moving forward, um, you know, to, to help these companies succeed, right? I mean, back right now with all these accelerators and all these CVCs, um, you know, corporate acceleration programs, corporate innovation programs, we're creating a lot of supply. Yeah, right? we are, aren't we? We are creating a lot of supply. I'm not, I'm not saying that every one of it is good, but there will be a good number of them that have potential. We then need to make sure that we consume. So the corporates, the government, they have to support, they have to start consuming, they have to say, hey, look, you know, I don't mind risking this little bit of money on these guys because, you know, who knows, they might be the next, you know, Google, they might be the next Facebook, right? Because if you don't consume, they'll die. You know, do, forget so about Do you help your cohort companies, and they will die, right? I, I agree with you completely. Do you help your cohort, cohort companies go out and raise money for the next round? Or, like, how do you build your own community around finding who those investors are? How do people find out about the FinLab, how do they find out about your cohort companies and how do you promote them in a way besides just, you know, helping them grow and get clients, but how do you promote them in a way that helps them raise their next round of funding? Well, by making ourselves visible, I guess, number one, uh, you know, I take on a lot of uh, speaking engagements, so I'm going out there to tell them what the FinLab is doing, uh, what our portfolio companies are doing and what we're looking uh, for in terms of, you know, uh, VC uh, in terms of family offices, in terms of all these different folks who might have money and, you know, don't know where to invest. You know, hey, look, you know, we have already screened these companies. They've come through. They're good companies. Help them grow, right? Um, and we are always continually looking to see whether, you know, we're bringing in smart money for these guys or we're just bringing in money. To me, the color of money is the same, but if they can be smart money, all the better. But if, if it's not smart money and it's just money, I'll take it anyways. Yeah, fair enough. But I guess the real question was, do you do you keep, like, is there an ad hoc way that you do this or is there a systematic way that you keep a list of investors that you can go to when these companies start to grow and do you segment them by verticals or by sectors and stuff like that? Or do, you, do you just think, oh, I heard about this lady who invests in these type of companies and go do that? Like, I just, I'm curious what the systematic no. way okay. is that you do this. All right. Um, when we, you know, when we have our cohort, what we do is that we let, uh, the, 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 the mailing list, we let our, um, you know, a lot of these guys are also our mentors. We let them know what's happening. We keep them uh, engaged. We, you know, organize events. We invite them to come to these events where they have a chance to, you know, interact with the companies in our cohort. And, you know, we keep telling them, hey, look, you know, if this is something that you would like to look at, maybe not now, maybe in the near future, you know, just let us know. We'll, we'll, we'll help, you know, to keep, you know, uh, to, to have you kept in touch so you know what's uh, their, you know, what's their, you know, uh, progress moving forward. So, go ahead. Okay, I was just hearing. Um, no, go ahead. It's fine. All right. So, I wouldn't say it is entirely ad hoc, nor is it totally systematic, but... You know, it is it is a, a very, very simple process to say, hey, look, if you've registered interest, I will continue to keep you updated. And if there are new people who have heard about us, 
and come to us, we'll run that same process through them and say, hey, look, you know, this is a portfolio of 13 companies. Tell us which are the areas that you are interested in. And now I'll be able to then single out a, fo- a few of them that fall within your purview. And I'll tell you about them in a little bit more detail. If you like them, then maybe I'll arrange, you know, for you to meet with them because I really don't like to keep organizing beauty parades where I get these guys to come around and tell them, tell each and everybody what they do, you know, time and time again and not getting any real traction. Right. I mean, look, this is a problem that I see throughout the ecosystem. And that's the reason why I was asking you, right? I call this sort of investment tourism. Right. And I think that a lot of people think they're participating as investors in the ecosystem, but they're not really. And what you're saying, what you're saying to me is actually confirming that. And what you're saying really is that a lot of people sort of reflect an interest, but maybe do or don't have an interest. But in the end, they're not really going to make an investment. And because you have to do this over and over and over again, you end up with this numbers game, right? Like you can introduce your company or your portfolio companies to a thousand people that may or may not be interested, or you can introduce them to 10 people, all of whom may have an interest, right? So there's a question in my mind as to how to systematize that, and I think you're confirming that, actually. Yeah, it is, it is, a, it is an issue. I mean, it's a buyer's market right now, right? Because you've got so much supply, right? And yeah. uh, these guys will, will, will shop, and uh, that is the reality. And until you are able to then zoom in and say, hey, look, if you really know who or what the, the, the investors are looking for and you have something that pretty much matches you know, what they are looking for, then yeah, then it, it, it would be a good conversation. But even then, there is no guarantee that the investment will come in. Agreed. Look, Felix, I think this is a great way to end this conversation. I think we've covered a ton of ground, actually, if we go all the way back to Silk Route, to ECNet, and all the way to the FinLab. I think there's been a great story told about just the experience that you've gained over time and all the things that you've learned kind of funneling themselves into how to make the FinLab better and CVC and just working with your cohorts. I just think it's been really interesting to me, and I think our listeners will find it really interesting as well. So I really wanted to thank you, um, managing director at the FinLab for just coming and talking to us and participating in, in today's conversation, telling a great story. Thank you very much for having me, Michael. Oh, it's completely my pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at www.asiatechpodcast.com.